All right, praise God. It's time to get into his word this morning for just a little while, 30 minutes or so, maybe. Um, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews as uh, we begin today. I'd, if you want to like to turn to it, going to be focusing on just a couple of verses in the beginning of chapter 2, but to give that context, I'm going to read all of chapter 1, which isn't very long. Uh, we can't read the word enough, right? So all of chapter 1 and the first couple of verses or so of chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here this morning as we've worshipped you. And we ask, Lord, that as you have inhabited our praise, you would inhabit the preaching of this word. And, Lord, that you would seal it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In the course of this year, over the last, I guess it was more than a few months ago, we've read or heard, both in the secular media and in Christian media, about some prominent members of the body of Christ in ministry who have turned away 
from their faith, renounce their faith. One, a former pastor, a speaker, and um, author. One, a very prominent songwriter and worship leader in a very well-known church. And when we read or hear about these things as believers, it can be disheartening. But in fact, it's nothing new, and it's something that happens every day, sadly. Is anyone familiar with the name Chuck Templeton? Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Chuck Templeton. Chuck Templeton was a man who was a friend and colleague of Billy Graham. Anybody ever heard the name of Billy Graham? I thought I'd get a bigger response for that. But in the early to mid-1940s, Chuck Templeton and Billy Graham became acquainted. They became friends and colleagues. They actually ministered together in evangelistic crusades. Chuck Templeton, in his own right, was a successful evangelist. He had successful evangelistic crusades, mass crusades, just like Billy Graham. He became one of the early vice presidents of Youth for Christ after it was formed, and a member of the National Council of Churches. But then in the later 1940s, something happened in this man's heart and his mind, and he began to change. He began to be deeply influenced by humanist writings and secular scientific writings. And by 1948, Chuck Templeton, former evangelist, former leader with Youth for Christ, renounced his faith. He said he could no longer believe what he had been preaching. He became an agnostic. He embraced a different worldview and no longer accepted the authority of Scripture. The author of Hebrews, some believe it was Paul, some others, I'm not quite so sure, so I'll just name him as the author of Hebrews, writes to a group of believers, as so many of the New Testament epistles are, who were enduring tough times. He writes to them, encourages them, and challenges them, exhorts believers, both them and us, to be strong in the faith, to stay strong, to be on guard, He says that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that message that's been preached because Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, some of which we read there in the first part of his letter, which we have as chapter 1, because he is the fulfillment of those prophecies, we must pay attention, take heed to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. Listen to the commentary on this first verse 
of the second chapter and particularly on this matter of drifting by Alexander McLaren. He was a 19th century commentator, expositor of scripture and theologian. He wrote, drifting is the thing to be afraid of. Just as some boat not made fast to the bank certainly glides downstream so quietly and with so little friction that her passengers do not know that they are moving until they come up on deck and see new fields around them. So the things which we have heard and to which we ought to be moored or anchored, we shall drift, drift away from. And in nine eases out of ten, shall not feel that we are moving till we are roused by hearing the noise of the whirlpools and the falls close ahead and look round and see a strange country. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to be vigilant against what is sort of a spiritual attention deficit disorder. Now we know that ADD is a neurological disorder against which we have no control, but which can be treated. So I say it's sort of an attention deficit disorder in a spiritual sense, because this attention deficit disorder we do have control over. It's something over which we have control and which we can prevent, or when needed, correct. The word that is translated here as pay attention or heed is used four times in the New Testament. The first occurrence of it is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. And here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, it's a bit of a rebuke because they are in a boat, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples say, oh, He's upset because we forgot to bring bread. And you can picture Jesus saying, Oy vey. <laughs> Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking about bread, but on, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees. Be on guard against the teachings. Jesus uses this word, which is translated as, uh, translated as pay attention in a negative way. Don't pay attention. Don't listen to the yeast of the Pharisees or the teaching of the Pharisees. Paul used it also in a negative fashion in his epistle to, to Timothy, the first epistle. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, we'll begin in verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. devoting themselves, paying attention to. Paul says, don't pay attention to them. 
It's used a third time in the book of Acts, and this time it's in a positive sense, as it is here in Hebrews. And here it's used in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and it speaks of Lydia's conversion. Lydia of Thyatira, who paid attention to the teachings of the Pharisees, of Jesus, excuse me, and the teachings of Paul. It says, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She heard, she listened, she responded. The writer of Hebrews says, this is what we need to do. Pay attention, give heed to what the gospel is saying to what Jesus has done, to who he is, to his word. It's like he's saying, everything I wrote in the first chapter of this letter, all these messianic prophecies is just a small sample of them, confirming scriptures that testify to the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels and to Moses and to Elijah and to Abraham. He's writing to the Hebrews here, and those three men were highly regarded among the Jews, and that he's the one through whom God's spoken and is the exact representation of God himself. So if the old covenant, the writer says, is binding, how much more the one established by Jesus that fulfilled all that the Old Testament pointed to. So then understanding, believing, and holding fast to the gospel, which he and we proclaim is of critical importance to your success in navigating through the Christian life. Hear it, believe it, cling to it, be vigilant. Because if you're not, the author says, you're running the risk of drifting. If our lives, if our boat, so to speak, is anchored to Jesus and his word, we're in safe harbor. We're in sheltered waters. But the problem is we can drift from that mooring because other things compete for our attention and our affection, our time, our commitment. And some of these things are not even bad, but they're not the best. You know the old saying that sometimes the good robs us of the best. Some of these things creep into our lives unaware, almost until we find ourselves drifting out into sea. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a gradual thing. So how do we get to that place? What are the reasons for drifting? I have a few this morning for the next few minutes. I'd like to share them. I'm sure there are many others. But one of the things that can cause us to drift are the demands of life. Good things. Work, sometimes family, responsibilities at home. I'm I'm not implying that we should neglect any of these things. But the demands of life, the cares of life, can sometimes squeeze out 
time and our energy that we should be devoting to Jesus, to God, to the Word, to the Word, to His church. We need to be discerning about that. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14, and 15th through the 21st verses. He says, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. It's an important thing, right? Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Sounds like a really good excuse to me. So the servant said, or the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. All legitimate excuses, but they shouldn't have taken precedence over the invitation of the master. The things the demands of life, the cares of life. We have to deal with them, but we can't let them take precedence over our relationship with Jesus, the, de- the, the demands and the things that he tells us to do. Another of the things that can cause us to, to drift besides the demands of life, the deception of man. The deception of man. Paul writes to the Colossian church, and he says this in the second chapter See to it that no one takes you captive, this is the eighth verse, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than. On Christ. This is the signature verse of the Truth Project. For those of you who may remember it, remember it. We did it a number of years ago here at Emmanuel. Don't be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Secular humanistic philosophies abound in the world, and they have since the beginning. Just about. Not all of those philosophies are evil. But if we begin to incorporate into our Christian worldview those things that do not fit, then we're in danger. It can begin to cause us to drift. And it seems like the church in our culture today is becoming more and more inclined to adopt some of the views of the world 
And I'm not talking about just those who are in more liberal, mainstream denominations. I'm talking about those in the evangelical church. Sometimes it seems like we lack the discernment that we need. There's a rising tide of acceptance of what has been clearly defined in Scripture as unacceptable, even among believers. We need to guard against that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what has light to do with darkness? We need to be aware of that. When we fall for the thinking of the world and try to incorporate the world's philosophies into our faith, we could be headed for trouble. We can detach ourselves from the anchor of Jesus. A third thing that can cause us to drift is the perversion of truth. Somewhat related to the second point, but a little different in and of itself. In Matthew 16, 12, Jesus talked about the Pharisees' teaching. We read it a moment ago. Guard against the yeast, not used in bread, but the yeast of the Pharisees, the teachings of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were teachers of the law, and many of them, however, perverted the law for their own gain, twisted it for their own understanding. In the 15th chapter of Matthew, Jesus speaks prior to these words that he speaks to his disciples. He confronts the Pharisees in the 5th and 6th verses. He says, and this is an example of what they would do, but you say, well, we'll go back to the third verse, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. The Pharisees were perverting truth for their own gain. Truth is still perverted today by teaching false doctrine. There's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of it out there. We read 1 Timothy 1.3 earlier where Paul warned Timothy to give warning to those who were teaching false doctrine in the church at Ephesus. And Paul saw this coming. When he left Ephesus, we have it recorded in, in Acts chapter 20, he said to the elders there, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock 
of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now let me be clear, there are differences in the Church of Jesus Christ with regard to many areas of doctrine. Some churches do communion one way, other churches do it a different way. Some baptize one way, some baptize another. There are different models for leadership and different kinds of church government. There are different views on eschatology, that is, end times things. There are premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists. I'm not talking so much about these things. But messing with the doctrines regarding who God is, who Christ is, what he's done, the authority of the word of God, even if we interpret some things a little differently, heaven and hell and the way to salvation, these things are non-negotiables. They're non-negotiables. And yet there are those teachings that have crept into the church that have changed some of the truth of Scripture in these areas. In Galatians 3, verse 1, Paul admonishes the Galatian church who, is falling, who are falling prey to the teachers of the Judaizers who said, you have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to keep the law. You have to do... And he said, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? That word means to be captivated under a spell so that, so that one cannot reason properly. And that happens to some believers, and it can cause them to drift if you're not on guard. You can be sucked into what may sound good, but it's not sound doctrine, and you go drifting. Sucked into legalism. You have to do this, you have to do that, something that Paul was admonishing the Galatians for. You can be sucked into the prosperity gospel. You can be sucked into the social gospel, which emphasizes social issues to the minimization of the truth of sound doctrine. Not that we need not need be concerned with social things, but when it takes preeminence and prominence over the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there's a problem. And you can get sucked into it. All these things and more can suck believers in and detach them from the anchor of Jesus. Don't believe everything that you hear in a podcast or on Christian television. It's not all true. Some of it's twisted. There are other things that pull us away from the dock. Last week I shared about persecution and Paul's perspective on keeping the eternal perspective. Persecution, the trials of life, can cause us to drift if we get overwhelmed by them. Temptation, of course, 
the desire to satisfy the flesh can overwhelm us. The cancer of compromise. And Satan, of course, he's ultimately at the root of all this, but you know, we do pretty well on our own sometimes. You know what James said in the first chapter of his epistle? He said, we'll read it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. All these things can cause us to drift gradually without even knowing it. And none of us are exempt. Sometimes it may just be a slight drift. Sometimes we're out in the middle of the ocean before we know something's happened. We need to be vigilant and guard against it. Lee Strobel, who was a man who came to Christ, the case for Christ is one of, I guess, his most uh, best-selling book. They made a movie about it a couple of years ago. In that book, he wrote of interviewing Chuck Templeton, who I spoke about at the beginning of the message. He interviewed him not but long before his death. Templeton was in his 80s. Quoting from the book, Lee Strobel asked him, how do you assess this Jesus? It seems like the next logical question, or it seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I have ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learn from Jesus. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most, he stopped, then started again. In my view, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, 
he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. A man who was used powerfully by God at the end of his life, recognizing the importance of Jesus in history, in the world, still apparently not turning back to him fully, but still at the same time saying, I miss him. Deadly drift. Deadly drift. Our faith can be shipwrecked, become ineffective, live an unfulfilling life when we begin to drift. So what can we do? How do we guard against it or correct it? Just a few things as we close. First of all, evaluate. Evaluate your lifestyle. What are you doing that you may not need to do when it comes to the cares of this life and the responsibilities of this life? What occupies your time? We can work. We can carry out our responsibilities and should, of course, and even enjoy downtime and leisure time. But when any or all of these things begin to take priority in our lives, we need to recognize it and correct it before we drift too far. Evaluate your life. Examine. Take a look at what your ears and eyes are taking in. I mentioned it earlier. Who are the teachers you're listening to? Who are those that you're watching? What are they teaching? Is it biblically sound? Don't believe everything you hear just because some popular teacher or preacher said it. Check it out. Be like the Bereans who Luke tells us in Acts 17 11, listen to Paul preach. Sorry. <laughs> listen to, I'll stand still. Listen to Paul preach. And then, this is the Apostle Paul. This guy has a reputation, but they still examined the things that he said. They looked closely at what he was teaching. That's the kind of attitude we need to have. Because if we begin to take in things that are not sound doctrine, it can cause us to drift. Sometimes those doctrines become more important than the sound doctrine of Scripture, than Jesus is. We think we've got the formula. We know how to do it. We know how to get what we need or whatever it is, and we lose sight of the truth. Evaluate, examine, and then finally eliminate. 
When you've done the first two things and you find that your boat has started to drift, jettison those things that have caused it to do so. Throw them overboard. Throw them overboard. Would ask Derek to come, and I guess the whole worship team, I don't know how you plan to do it, but we want to close with a great hymn of the faith. None of us are exempt from the things that want to get between us and Jesus. Be vigilant, be on guard, pay close attention to God's voice as he speaks clearly through his word, and cultivate your relationship with him so that you will sense his spirit's conviction and his spirit's voice. The apostle John in one of his epistles, speaking to those to whom he wrote, said, you have the Spirit of God. You have no need. Didn't mean that you don't ever need a teacher, but what he was saying was when you cultivate that relationship with God, the Spirit of God will teach you what is right and good and sound doctrine. Deadly drift can destroy us. Let's be on guard against it.